Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Dead Ringers Gynecological Horror Edition. It's Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. On today's show, Dead Ringers. It's a prestige TV remake of the classic David Cronenberg film. This one stars Rachel Weisz as twin gynecologists with a plan to change the world for the better? Eh, Not so sure. It's on Amazon Prime. And then uh, the writers are on strike in Hollywood, and that means... Hollywood has gone dark. It certainly affects our show, or will eventually. We are going to discuss the current state of the labor impasse with Anusha Sakui of the LA Times. And finally, traffic, aka virality, though I think it means other things too, has come to define the internet over the last 20 years. We discuss that and a new book about that with Slate's own Dan Coyce. Joining me is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia, how's it going? Hello, hello. And, of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Greetings. Let's uh, make a show, shall we? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, the TV show Dead Ringers, it's on Amazon Prime. It's prestige TV. Uh, It stars Rachel Weisz as identical twin gynecologists, Beverly and Elliot. They live together. They work together. They eat together. And let's just say their romantic lives are very entangled. Um, They look identical, but they are sides of a coin in a way. One's introverted, shy, principled. One is funny, nasty, nihilistic, and together they've sought out private equity money to make their dream come true, which is to, as they say, change the way women birth forever. But is that really The show is based, of course, on the classic David Cronenberg movie. This version comes from showrunner Alice Birch. She of Succession and Normal People, an English playwright, I believe. In the clip we're about to hear, Rachel Weisz is acting opposite herself. She's Beverly and Elliot, and they're debating the ethics of using medical science to cook up designer babies. Let's uh, let's have a listen. You want a boy and not a girl? Fine. Why shouldn't you? It's not fried food, Elliot. Mm. You want to have your baby on a Wednesday? You want it to have blue eyes? You want it to be incapable of catching a fucking cold ever? You want to have twins, triplets, quads? You want to stop the menopause? You want men to lactate? You want female sperm? You want me to grow you a baby out of nothing? You want me to tighten your vagina whilst I pull a baby out of your belly button? Fine, bring it on. Let's do the research. Let's make anything fucking happen. It's not what we do, Elliot. Oh, that's not what you do. All right, let me start with you, Julia. This is quite a show. Um, the one thing all critics seem to converge on is what an a tour de force acting performance it is from Rachel Weiss to play both sides of a kind of split personality. What would you make of this show? I mean, it was funny to encounter this show the week after talking about Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and have that brief conversation about how no period blood is shown and what that choice meant, because this TV show shows you all the blood in all the places. And um, I found it actually electrifying and moving to be shown. I mean, it's in a kaleidoscopic montage of visceral shots of literal viscera, but to like be brought into the the kind of emotional reality and violence and insanity of birth like it's such a profound subject and so i uh, the way in which this show portrays miscarriage blood the little bit and bob of the thing that did not become a fetus uh the you know stillbirth you know 
postpartum maternal mortality, just the many outcomes that can happen when a pregnant woman goes into the birthing chamber, I found like radical and amazing and and electrifying. And then the fact that what that is sort of an avenue for is this tour de force creep performance from Rachel Weiss of these like very, very twisted twins and their their twisted relationship. Um, you know, it's all uh, this adaptation of a David Cronenberg film that's a, an adaptation of a novel that's a novelization of two real life twin gynecologists in New York um, was funny. Like I couldn't, it feels like there's something important to be said on this subject. And it feels like having, you know, several women make this show in this moment in American history and TV history is an opportunity. And then the fact that it's kind of like a camp soap. I wasn't sure I loved how those pieces came together. What did, what am I missing? I mean, have have both of you or either of you seen the Cronenberg movie Dead Ringers that this is based on, or that it, they're based on the same novel as Julia said? Confession: I, have I never have seen that. Yeah, movie. I didn't think either of you had because I know you're both squeamish about viscera and things like that. I mean, I will just say that when I heard there was a Dead Ringers spinoff TV show, my first thought was, why is one needed and why is it gender switched? Right? I mean, in real life, the, the twin gynecologists who their real life story is so much more bizarre than almost anything you could imagine in fiction. But they were both men, and a big part of why the story w- was so fascinating and creepy, and really what Cronenberg's film was all about, was you know their the, the misogyny inherent in these these twin gynecologists having this kind of obsession uh, in Cronenberg's imagination with sort of you know female monstrosity basically right it was a show about these two men's projections and imaginations of of womanhood mm-hmm. and then this woman played by Genevieve Bujold who they sort of you know swap back and forth between them um obviously gender swapping the story changes that angle and i think in some ways this show makes sense of that dramatically and in some ways it doesn't i mean it's not anymore a show i would say about fear and horror of the female body the way that the cronenberg mm. film is about that um but it does do some smart things with sort of um contemporary trends about wellness right i mean the way they get this vc capital is that they have to kind of woo this um this sackler like uh, pharma millionaire played wonderfully by jennifer ely in a much meaner performance than she usually gives right she's always someone really glowing and maternal oh and suddenly she's this yes. horrible snake and she's absolutely great in the role um, evil ely is the best Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of want to show with, with just Jennifer Ely ruling the world in, in an evil manner because she's only in a few episodes of this. But I'm not sure that that this show makes very much dramatic sense, if that makes sense. And I can't get it without spoiling the end. Uh, there's six episodes and uh, I've seen the, seen all of them now. Without spoiling the stuff that happens in the last episode, I can't quite get into why. But thematically, right, the idea is that what's scary about these two women is that they are kind of Frankensteins behind the scene. In fact, that's explicitly referenced at one point, that they're manipulating, you know, Mm -hmm. genetics and human reproduction in this scary way. But I feel like in some ways the gender swapping takes away from the deeper meaning of that because it's no longer a critique of patriarchy. This reminds me a little bit of, and sorry if this seems very off topic, but the recent Broadway production of Company, the Stephen Sondheim musical, that was also gender swapped, that Bobby, the hero who usually is this sort of, this guy who goes through women, you know, and can't can't form a solid bond in any relationship, is suddenly played by a woman and to me, it's sort of, it's not that gender swapping can never make sense, but in certain scenarios, if you're critiquing the way men treat women in straight relationships in mainstream culture, and then suddenly women are playing the men, it's not really quite clear what you're critiquing anymore. Does that make sense? So to me, in a way, I think this right. would be my ultimate statement on Dead Ringers. It's the placeholder for a great stunt performance by Rachel Weisz playing these two crazy opposite personality twins. But I am not sure what the show is about other than that and a lot of gore. I don't know that I've ever had such a appropriately in this instance, like split reaction to a TV show, which is that I thought the first hour or whatever the pilot was, was drop dead, like stone cold, brilliant. I th- I mean, I, Vice was in, is just, <laughs> I mean, it is a tour de force. It's an astonishing act, a piece of acting, double piece of acting. But, um, and the drop off to the second episode and then to the third was quite 
it plunged, I mean, in my estimation. And what I note is that Alice Birch, who created it um, from the you know IP, uh, wrote the first and the final episode. And I just thought the first was actually in its own weird way for being a Pomo gothic. Um, I thought the first one was actually quite in its own weird way, sort of subtly drawn. The humor was very wicked and alive. It came from a definite sensibility. And it was on point over and over and over again about the plight of women in all respects in the modern slash postmodern world. Um, And then in the second one, all of a sudden there's this ham-handed satire about private equity and the Sacklers. And Ely's wonderful. Um, But I thought that... We've seen it, right? Like like Succession is the category-killing prestige TV dramedy right now. But here's what I, I think the show conceptually landed for me in that here we are. And I mean, the show is, first of all, obviously, it's about the gore of giving birth and the, the, the plight of childbearers, like the, just the sheer physical torment of childbearers in a society in which for being, you know, technologically advanced and medicalized, you know, the control of that process is in the hands of men. And out of that discrepancy comes these horrible injustices that at least one of these sisters wants to rectify. That, to me, is utterly gripping. But then on top of it, I think what this is about is we all have, this is a dialectic, these two sisters, right? And under this phase of whatever you want to call it, history or capitalism, we all have both of these impulses. One is the completely nihilistic, malice-filled sellout who understands that the rule is there are no rules. And if you don't throw away all of your sense of norm obedience, you're going to die on the fucking vine of late capitalism. And there's another part of us, which is Emily Dickinson or whatever, or principled, morally principled, shy, introverted, withdrawn, and doesn't want to hand all of ourselves over to this giant, horrible financial leviathan, which is being satirized here. And what I think the show is saying is that, well, here's your dilemma. Let's say you want to make a kind of Faustian bargain, which the show is about. They decide to shake hands with this Sackler heiress uh, and try to rescue the good from the expedient in some sense. What inevitably happens is it's so evil that as soon as it has your grasp, you can only interface with it using that one side of yourself, right? There is no way to sort of withdraw the good from it in some sense. And and it's about a world that's sort of dialectically completely out of balance in some sense between these two extremes. So as a kind of allegory, it, weirdly, I thought it worked, but it only worked as a precise satire of that condition in that first episode and to a degree in the last. In between, I just thought the writing was too blunt and clumsy and familiar. We've we've done it many, many times. Yeah, Steve, wait till you get to, or maybe you've already seen it, the episode with Michael McKean in it about the Southern family, Mm -hmm. right? There's just, there's some moments, some moments of visual uh, analogy, visual visual metaphor in that episode that are just so painfully obvious that it just, this is a very up and down show. I mean, for being only six episodes long, it feels long and padded to me. And the episodes are a full 60 minutes, some of them over 60 minutes. So it is a serious commitment. I mean, honestly, I would say take your dead ringers at one third the time and just watch the Cronenberg movie. It's one of his best movies. Except for her performance, right, Julia? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's actually insane about it is you're never confused. Did you guys find this? Like, it's... it's In the very first episode, I was a few times because they do some twin switching moments. And But yeah, once you figure out what the ticks of each twin are, she differentiates them physically incredibly well. I mean, when I say stunt performance, I'm not talking down the performance. I'm just saying it's sort of all the show's got going for it. I just think the way that she embodies the the different physicality and vibe of the two people do you really uh, yes it's like oh does she have her hair pinned back but it doesn't feel like it is the costuming choice that is helping you understand which twin is speaking and even when the twins are impersonating the twins it's uh, like it felt so clear i mean honestly even just as a canvas for her to do this it seems worth it and to me honestly just that first that the pilot I don't know. I cried. I cried. Mm. It, it is such a 
It is so interesting how even as we make culture about all kinds of things and people love to shock and push boundaries and push taboos, you don't actually see babies crowning or women's, you know, torsos slit open. I mean, I guess maybe you see them if you watch old David Cronenberg movies, but um, <laughs> it's it's unusual to be confronted with the physicality of birth. And um, I found myself, you know, glad that this show had done that and also then a little bit confused about why this was the story I was choosing to tell with that material. Okay, well, what a perfectly apt show to be divided about both internally and in dialogue with others. That means we'd love to hear from you. Which <laughs> there side? are six of us in the room right now <laughs> <laughs> arguing about the movie. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love it. Um, so uh, send your multiple selves to the microprocessor. Shoot us an email. We'd love to know what you think. This one's a, weird, a wild one. Check it out. It's Dead Ringers on Amazon Prime. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have? See, if we have just one item of business this week, that is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're talking about coffee and wine, wine and coffee, the two (laughs) liquids that regulate our days if we are me. And uh, there have been a couple of news stories, one in Slate, one in Esquire, about whether these liquids, these beverages uh, are bad for you in moderation, how much we should be drinking, new scientific research about um, intake of coffee and wine. So we're going to talk just from a personal angle about our own relationship to those substances and whether we plan to curtail our consumption of them based on what we've been reading. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can, of course, sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your membership, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, which many other shows boast as well, and you get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate.com. You will never hit a paywall when you belong to Slate Plus, and you'll also be supporting our work and the work of our wonderful colleagues. These memberships are what keep Slate going, so please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right. It bears periodically reminding ourselves that before anything can happen in Hollywood, a writer somewhere has to write. And before writers in Hollywood write, also bears reminding ourselves their union has to have a collectively bargained agreement in place. The contract for the Writers Guild of America expired last week without a new one being in place. And so last week, the Guild went on strike to help us better understand why, what's at stake here, and what may happen to the content industry as a consequence. We're joined by Anusha Sakui of the LA Times. Anusha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, I note that it's been about it's 15 years, correct, since the last strike. So that's right. Presumably the terms under contest here are going to be very different. Can you just give us a sense of, of what those are, what the sticking points here are, and why they are proving, at least in the early stages, to seem totally intractable? So this strike that is ongoing now does have its roots in that last strike in 2007-2008 in that that was the first time the Writers Guild was able to get jurisdiction over the internet where they were able to get paid um, for their work appearing on the internet. At that time, it was just the beginning of iTunes and, you know, Netflix was still doing DVDs by mail. It wasn't the streaming world that we know now. Every three years, they do renegotiate the contract, but there hasn't been, you know, the guilds argued that, uh, you know, a sort of solid negotiation since before the pandemic, because in 2020, the last time, uh, the pandemic meant that they couldn't really negotiate to full force. There was no production to shut down or threaten to shut down if they wanted to go on strike. So it's been about six years since um, many of these terms have been renegotiated, and they ultimately feel that, you know, in the last years, six years, 15 years, the streaming world has completely upended not only the way they get paid, but the way they work. 
And that is not just in terms of, say, uh, one major issue is, say, residuals, which are the royalties that effectively they get paid every time their TV or film is re-shown, which they argue is much less than in the days of yore when uh, it was broadcast networks. And also the way that they work, they they argue that, um, you know, much fewer of them are being hired and being hired for shorter periods of time. That's That's the crux of the argument. And part of that has to do with, of course, the rise of the type of streaming show we see in television writing as well, right? There are sort of fewer films being made than there were 15 or 20 years ago in general. And then shows, instead of being almost automatically 20 to 24 episodes, uh, which since writers are paid by episode, um, and then episodes that could potentially be rerun with writers getting a residual for each episode, we have these six episode, eight episode, 10 episode run, sometimes with smaller rooms, which is part of what writers have articulated as the key sticking point. Is that a fair summary about what how the working conditions are different in, in the writer's view? Yeah. The streaming companies have popularized um, shorter series, uh, eight to 10 episodes, and also this thing called mini rooms, which are small groups of writers that are burdened with having to thrash out most of the series, but they argue they don't get paid uh, fairly enough for that work. And often the mini rooms happen before a green light, right? Isn't that also one of the sticking points? Yeah, it happens before it's greenlit, which is different to how it used to be. You know, you used to have a pilot and um, then uh, a show would get picked up and writers would be hired throughout the production. So that has multiple effects. So not only might you work for like, you know, 14 weeks, right, compared to 10 months, which is what the WGA is saying, you're being paid less. Um, You're having to string more of those jobs together to make your year. And also one of the aspects is uh, that the writers are arguing is that production has become disconnected from the writing. So, you know, they might have a mini room before it's green lit and they might you know, f- do the work on, on writing some of the episodes. And then the production happens, you know, maybe mu- if, if it happens months down the road, uh, maybe years, and then the writers aren't necessarily then picked up to go and assist that production and work on that production. And they argue that they're not learning their trade anymore. And, and showrunners are being overburdened with too much work. So tell us what the what the studios would say about all these arguments. What's their view of, of uh, this impasse? Their arguments are multifold. Uh, One of the requests from the WGA is to have a minimum number of writers working for a minimum amount of time. And they say that is to uh, preserve the the existence of a writer's room. The studios think that's paying for people who they don't necessarily need to be hired. They argue that some showrunners or creators of shows just like to work alone. They don't want to be hamstrung um, and not have the flexibility of hiring, you know, as, as they want. So, and they also don't think that they need to be hiring people for long periods of time so that they can be involved with productions. So that's uh, part of uh, their, their argument. They also argue that writers are being paid more in residuals um, than they have for many years, which is true. Um, The WGA's own analysis shows, um, you know, a near 30% increase in residuals being collected, um, you know, for the industry as a whole over the last five years. And some of the proposals that the the studios haven't counted, you know, uh, for example, the WGA wanting residuals linked to viewership, um, which would require the studios to open up their data data banks. Um, this was something, Anusha, that, that really shocked me about your last post. You've been covering the, the strike regularly over, since it began last week. And the most recent post you wrote contained some of this information about how the tech companies, the streaming companies, don't even release viewership data to the writing teams that are creating the shows, which I had just assumed that it was just us consumers that were not allowed to see inside that black box. But it is somewhat shocking that you're paying someone for creating a product and giving them no data whatsoever as to how that product is doing on the marketplace. And to give you Netflix's point of view, um, they argue that, you know, they share the top 10 uh, you know, films and TV shows. They they say that they do share some data, but writers argue it's not 
It's not like the public, you know, uh, date uh, viewership data that they were used to getting from, um, you know, broadcasters. And Amazon and other right. companies share nothing whatsoever, right? Right. I mean, it, it sort of depends who you speak to. Some people seem to get some, uh, maybe some numbers. It seems to be a bit ad hoc. But I think largely creators don't, are, you know, say that they they don't get enough data to be able to negotiate their own contracts um, well and, and to be able to estimate the performance of their their shows or films. Anusha, am I right in thinking that, first of all, whenever there's you know, a labor impasse of some kind, there's very heightened rhetoric. It It is a negotiating strategy, if nothing else, to make it seem as if the chasm between the two sides is vast and, you know, possibly, you know, unpassable. And then at some point in the process, you know, there's movement and then a deal and everyone moves on. So it in the, you know, in the short term, as you say, things go dark, especially if they're the sympathy strikes, then everything goes dark. That obviously affects the content industry. But there are long-term effects, and we've had a chance to understand what the long-term effects of the last strike were. The terms now are different, as has been said. It's a proxy uh, war in the much larger war between um, big tech and creatives. Uh, Do you have... Any predictions about what kind of a watershed we may look back on this as having been? Big question. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm so sorry. Big question. Um, I think that, you know, everything you said there is is fair. I mean, there is a huge amount of posturing and the the what's at risk for writers is they argue losing their livelihoods and they will have to weigh up you know the length of the strike their financial pain being potentially you know losing their livelihood permanently if studios cut deals with them um or maybe they can no longer afford to live in LA which you know happened last time in 2007 8 mm. that happened to a lot of writers so they will have to weigh that up but they but at stake is you know, getting a proper foothold in in streaming and, and making their careers, um, you know, able to give them a sustainable income. That's their argument, right? And also, I mean, we've got a new technology, you know, breathing down their necks, which is artificial intelligence. And, and that's part of the negotiations as well, trying to get ahead of that. Um, so I think there's there's a lot at stake. And for that reason, people think that this could go on for a very long time, this strike. I think that last AI bit is really interesting. So, you know, as the um, two different sides have, have begun to articulate the positions that they left at the negotiating table when they broke off talks and the strike began, the Writers Guild has articulated that they requested that the studios commit that shows should be written by humans. And the in the Writers Guild, the studios responded by saying that they would agree to have an annual meeting to discuss advances in technology. <laughs> which I think the Guild has had fun um, pointing up as a ominous counter for those who would prefer to not have their jobs replaced by robots. Um, But I do think like one of the interesting dynamics on the studio side is the potential tensions between the classic studios who've had to refashion themselves to compete with Netflix and the technology companies that have surged into Hollywood and, you know, the differences in their balance sheets, the degree to which halting production hurts their bottom lines as, as their um, cupboards of entertainment will start to run barer as, as the weeks and months progress. Um, and that sense that like, here is a place where a set of creative workers can confront uh, an industry that has been transformed by technology and that uh, that somehow I think the Guild has done a good job this time of articulating stakes that feel universal uh, rather than having it seem like kind of a parochial Hollywood fight about how much writers get paid, which in the past, I think there's, you know, whenever the writers strike, it's a national story but I think sometimes there's also a sense of like, well, you know, Hollywood screenwriters, they're fairly well paid anyway. They're out there complaining. They're doing their thing. Um, somehow I think that the 
entrance of tech companies into the arena. Um, so far, it feels to me like the writers have done a good job using that to make this feel like a more universal conversation. Yeah, and they're trying to preserve their way of working. They have uh, argued that effectively, you know, the tech companies are trying to do to their industry what they've done to others, you know, like, uh, you know, the Uberization of it, making it into a, a gig uh, economy, um, which the writers are trying to fight against. Sometimes I think one of the questions is going to be how much can you stop that you know one of the big efforts is to, to preserve the writer's room that's the whole thing behind um minimum numbers of writers being employed and minimum times of employment um that's one of the, the they're trying to preserve this this way that they used to work or have been working and question is you know can you stop the advancement of technology and like you said you know besides netflix but apple and amazon you know their video businesses are not their biggest businesses um and so it's not going to be their their main focus in the in the way that it is for some of the studios so i think it's going to it is definitely going to be interesting to see how that all plays out all right well uh anusha hopefully it will get resolved and we don't have to have you back on to explain why it's dragged on and you know how catastrophic it's become but uh in such an eventuality i really hope you come back on the show to discuss with us some more this was a great segment thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Well, we're joined by Slate's own Dan Coyce, writer and, of course, novelist, author of vintage. I mean, writers are novelists. I understand that. But uh, what I meant to say is cultural journalist and novelist. Dan Coyce is the author of Vintage Contemporaries. Dan, uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, Dan, it's not the most common thing in the world to interview the author of a book review as opposed to the author of the book under review. But I think in this instance, we made uh, the appropriate call because your review of a book called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. It's by the uh, media journalist Ben Smith, formerly of The New York Times. Your review is a kind of model of the form. You actually have incredibly apposite life experiences, including being one of the founders of Vulture uh, and having gone viral yourself at least once, uh, that you bring to bear on the piece. So in itself, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of journalism. Why don't you start about the experience of going viral? What is it like to have something you tweeted or did or said suddenly become, you know, that day's viral focus on Twitter, et cetera? It's a very out of body experience and and the thing that i find most striking about it is that while it's happening to you you have this sense that in a completely different plane um there's this bustle of activity surrounding you and your online persona that is growing and growing and growing and growing and it's completely out of your hands but at the same time it both has to do with you and is completely independent of you. It could, you know, it could cost you your job or it could get you a new and better job or a promotion or it could make you a laughing stock. Um, meanwhile, you're, you know, dropping your kids off at school or, uh, or, you know, riding your bike to work or more often clicking refresh on Twitter or on your company's traffic counter, watching the numbers creep up and up and sort of feeling everything get a little bit out of control. It's just a very unnerving and I think contemporary experience because it makes really evident the split between our online selves and our physical selves and the way that sometimes that split can be overcome in moments of of online extremists. Mm -hmm. Um, And traffic, the book, is so much about searching for that experience as a business proposition. And it's the experience for a human is so deranged that in some ways it makes it clear how odd a notion trying to make money, consistent money, real money off that phenomenon truly was. 
talk us through what the book is about in the sense that that Smith's thesis about all of this has been made quite vivid by telling two importantly related stories that are also importantly different, those of Denton and Peretti. Who are they? Right. So he's focusing in this book, he's basically trying to write a history of the last 20 years of the internet as seen through who he views as the two most important uh, entrepreneurs of that particular era. Um, And one of them is Nick Denton, who ran Gawker Media. Um, The other is Jonah Peretti, who was one of the founders of the Huffington Post, but later, you know, was a founder of BuzzFeed, a place where it's worth noting Ben Smith, in addition to writing for The New York Times, as you said, was the head of BuzzFeed News for many years and worked alongside with Peretti and, in fact, becomes a character in in the Peretti part of this drama. Um, Smith's argument is that the two of them had opposite views of of what traffic is and how you can control it. Nick Denton of Gawker viewed traffic as the natural reward for um, for a good product, for good content. And his idea of good content often revolved around the exposing of secrets. Um, he famously referred to Gawker as, you know, a, a a website that publishes the stuff that journalists are talking about, but that they're afraid to publish. Um, And he viewed traffic as a reward for that kind of good work. Now, you know, you can agree or disagree over whether what Gawker published was good work. I think I tend to think mostly it was then also sometimes they published Brett Favre's dick um, on their sister site, Deadspin. Um, Peretti conversely, viewed traffic as a kind of malleable substance that he could figure out and control. And so the goal wasn't to create work according to some philosophy of what people want to read. It was to create work according to a very carefully engineered set of specs that he believed would draw traffic in like moth to a flame. Did that work for you as a lens? It seemed limiting to me in part because I think in large part because I my experience of reading on the internet in what I now think of as the golden age of reading things on the internet mm. only had a little bit to do with Gawker Media sites and BuzzFeed. To my mind, the internet of the, you know, maybe of 2003 to 2011 what was so glorious about it was it it was this incredible cacophony of voices um and they they didn't seem mostly to be desperately questing for traffic they seemed mostly to be trying to express themselves to try to express the things that they'd been wanting to put into the world forever and then to argue with one another uh you know on blogs eventually on social media but it was that an incredible uh, range of voices. And, you know, in the piece I go through sort of a running list of the, the five dozen different great websites of that era that Ben Smith doesn't even really mention in this book. That was what that era was about to me. I know that from a business standpoint, all of those, nearly all of those sites are footnotes, but it's rapidly becoming clear that in the long run, Gawker Media and now BuzzFeed are also probably footnotes. Yeah, Dan, I think that is my my favorite part of your uh, your discussion of this book is is that entire paragraph of this just name after name of these mostly long gone sites that proliferated in that era. You know, places like the All and the, the Toast that you know that really fostered unusual voices who may now be big guns in media, some of them, but they're big guns under much more corporate culture kind of um, sites. And I was wondering, as somebody who is one of the co-creators of Vulture and one of the first culture bloggers to to work to that kind of schedule, which you talk about a bit in the piece that you just, you know, had to post and post and post all day long, um, what you think the office culture of that era has left us with? I mean, what it was like to be a media worker at that time. I just remember at the time and at the beginning of that era, I was, you know, keeping my own personal blog that eventually turned into me having a career in journalism. But I remember being so horrified at stories of the leaderboard at Gawker and the way that they literally had like a big 
right? I mean, a, just a, a big visible board to everyone in the office. Yeah, giant showing TVs that showed, that showed how everyone was doing for the day and what the top posts were at the site. That, and that, that was also public. It was publicly available information to anyone on the internet. If you wanted to see, you could at any moment. I mean, that just seems like such incredibly unhealthy work culture. And I wonder both what it was like to work under that and to what extent you think that that, you know, there may not be leaderboards with traffic being posted minute to minute anymore, but how that's affected the way journalists think about their work. I will say that the leaderboards were far from the most toxic aspect of working at Gawker. (laughs) And I was somewhat lucky in that Vulture was launched as an experiment at a legacy magazine, New York Magazine, um, that was trying to figure it out and wasn't nearly as focused at a granular level on traffic as a place like Gawker. Gawker really was an exception at that time. There was, I don't think there was any other um, company in those days where individual writers knew what individual posts were doing traffic wise. The big difference is that now that's true. Most places like it's very unusual. I think at this point to be a writer for any kind of, um, you know, corporate owned website, even, and Julia, please correct me if I'm wrong, even the LA times, I think it's unusual to not know which of your pieces are hits, which pieces are drawing in traffic and to not at least have conversations about what it is, um, the, the publication should be covering, or at least what it is that it seems readers are most interested in. And, and it doesn't seem toxic to me anymore in the way that it seemed toxic at Gawker because most publications are not actively pitting their writers against one another in a kind of like blood sport, but it definitely doesn't seem to have had a salutary effect on the journalism that we all do overall to know that, uh, you've got to draw traffic and that, you know, your, your publication is on a razor's edge at all times. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about having been at Slate through this boom moment that Ben Smith is describing is that Slate was the product of a different earlier internet boom moment. Slate was founded in 1996 by Microsoft, who was like, hey, the internet, we've invented it, kind of. Uh, Maybe there should be some sites on it. Let's hire this guy, Michael Kinsley, and see what he does. And I think Michael Kinsley was like, hey, the New Republic, that was a fun place to work, but printing all that paper costs so much money. What if we just do it online? Maybe that'll work better. You know, so so it was always funny to be navigating this era of experimentation at a site that was a kind of veteran of an earlier era of, of, of experimentation and a survivor of an earlier era of experimentation. Um, and to be operating with sort of constraints that at times felt limiting, like we weren't spending 68 gajillion dollars a month on journalists. Um, we weren't taking venture capital as, I mean, as like a big example. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we were, we were, um, we were just more measured in our approach to like, what kind of business can you build and how much should you invest and how do you grow and how do you compete with these companies that that seem to be growing so fast. Um, and it's, you know, here, here, here Slate is a veteran of another era. Um, to get back to your question about the LA Times, the thing that's interesting about a newspaper newsroom is that the, the, so much of the work of the team is um, actually out in the world, like finding information to put onto the internet. It is a slightly less internet attached place. Right. You know, on the other hand, the internet is where we put our stories. And so understanding those dynamics of attention matters. And I will say for all, like there's a, there's a great essay by Nathan Heller, formerly of Slate sort of describing uh, some of the culture change at Slate as it navigated some of these eras um, that, you know, I think I am still of the belief that having the information about what audiences are interested in is useful. Like I don't, I just don't think it's a good posture for journalists to be anti-information. Like fundamentally, we are pro-information as a as a tribe, <laughs> and so and a, and like our core belief is that not only can we find information, we can like use it and comprehend it wisely. So 
the illusion that we may have had in the past in publishing a print bundle that each story in that bundle was lovingly read and they were all equally interesting and they were all perfect because we thought they were, um, was like obviously delusional. So <laughs> I'd rather have the information and try to make smart decisions about it than not. The sneakers yeah. package was still a good idea though, Julia. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. It's been remarkable over the last couple of weeks to read all the really interesting essays that have been published around this book. Um, I think taken as a whole, they are likely more interesting about that era than the book itself is, you know, including Nathan's, including Max Reed and his um, uh, newsletter, and just including a million, a million people have weighed in. I liked John Herman's too. In yeah, New John York Herman's. Austin. And Max Reed also reviewed it for the Washington Post uh, and Rusty Foster and, and Today in Town. Like it's it, the, the constellation of pieces around this book remind me in a heartening way of the constellation of writing that would uh, that evolves around any interesting cultural product mm-hmm. it, which seems like a great artifact of this yeah. era of the birth of blogs so, so that has been i think my favorite part about the publication of this book yeah here here beautifully said dan uh it's always a pleasure to have you on dan Coyce. his piece is a dishy new history of online media leaves out half the equation thanks for coming back on dan Thanks, guys. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you got? Stephen, I got a good one this oh, week. I'd love to hear it. So as of yesterday, May 8th, the UCLA Film and TV Archive, which is really one of the great resources for film restoration in the world, uh, just released this fantastic new database of old newsreels. They're all um, the Hearst newsreels. The newsreels that came out of the Hearst Company that were shown, you know, before movies in theaters from 1929 to 1967, as long as the the Hearst newsreel existed. So you can imagine, given that these came out every few days, if not every week, that there are probably thousands, there have to be thousands, tens of thousands of newsreels now archived and beautifully restored in this database, which they made really, really searchable. And uh, I saw this uh, on on Dave Kerr's Twitter, the film historian. He said correctly that this is the ultimate time suck. So if you go to newsreels.net, that's the website where the UCLA Film and TV Archive has posted all of these. And they're super indexed. They're super searchable. You can do it by subject. You can do it by year. You basically feel like you're watching that segment of Citizen Kane, News on the March, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing it's parodying. But it's the real thing that played in real theaters for all those years. And already I've seen people finding incredible gems in here, including a Buster Keaton scholar who is just one of the great archive divers in the world, found a clip that I'd never heard of him speaking um, for the first time, you know, the first time his voice was recorded, basically, for sound film in 1930. So before wow. he'd ever spoken in a movie, he had, you know, done a little comedy bit for a newsreel, and she found it. Anyway, I think pretty much any topic that you wanted to search, you could probably come up with gems like that. So go to newsreels.net and uh, tell me when you surface what you found. That is a great endorsement. That is very cool. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Well, I have a, a like, L.A. Times homage uh, endorsement today. It's been a great week in our newsroom. The paper won two Pulitzers yesterday. Very fun to see the team's work recognized in that way. And it occurred to me that I had not yet shared with our listeners this amazing project that our books editor put together called The Ultimate LA Bookshelf, which is the consummate list of things to read if you want to understand LA. And it goes back decades and it's cross genre. Um, the team working on it put together this amazing panel of LA literature experts. It's a really wide ranging list. I'm already reading my way through it. It's an incredible guide. So again, it's the ultimate LA bookshelf uh, for anybody who wants to understand this city and its striking writers and everything else that happens under our sunny, although actually today, slightly gray skies. All right. Well, this week, as part of my ongoing attempt to come to terms with classical music, 
I was listening to the Chopin nocturnes, these little piano pieces that are filled with deep moods. And there's a justly famous recording of them by Arthur Rubinstein, the pianist. And But I was looking for something a little fresher, not that those aren't wonderful. And I came across a Canadian-born classical pianist named um, Jan, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's spelled like Lysecki, basically, L-I-S-I-E-C-K-I. Um, and he's this wunderkind, and he's been probably not hurt in his career for looking like a very young, dashing Matthew Modine or something. I mean, he's just an improbably good-looking young man with this amazing mane of sort of golden blonde hair. Um, but he doesn't appear to be hyped, actually. I mean, he's a real piano prodigy um, and uh, was signed to Deutsche Grammophon at the age of like, you know, I don't know, like 14 or something or 15. Um, and I think his recording of the Nocturnes is is gorgeous. It's simple and straightforward in some sense in that it, there's no gimmicky newness to it. I also don't know classical music well enough to say what is he like a super cold technician who just happens to have you know mastered the piano at a um you know sort of preternaturally early age or is he at moments too moody and and too brooding and sort of indulgently so they sound like wonderful interpretations to me i'd love it if people who know classical piano and maybe these pieces in particular and the history of their recordings could uh, email in and say, oh, no, 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 this is a, a find. But as of now, I think they're insanely beautiful. They're on, as I said, Deutsche Grammophon, complete nocturnes. And we'll put a link to that recording on our show page. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Dana. It was a pleasure. Yeah, really fun. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. And a special thanks to Jared Downing for helping to pull together the show, selecting the clips, etc. Thanks a lot, Jared. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 